Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Joseph Davis about his new book, Chemically Imbalanced Everyday Suffering, Medication, and Our Troubled Quest for Self-Mastery. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. I'm delighted to be here. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, um, <laughs> nothing particularly uh, outstanding, but um, I have a background. I, I studied at the University of Minnesota with a background in anthropology. Um, and then later, actually in my 30s, I went back to graduate school here at the University of Virginia um, and did a, a PhD in cultural sociology. Um, otherwise, uh, I have a family, three children, um, and work here at uh, the university at a, a research center called the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture, um, which, as the name suggests, we do um, focus on culture and cultural change um, and how, how kind of the world we're living in is being transformed before our very eyes. Um, and uh, I've been here since the late 90s, so long time. And how did you come to write Chemically Imbalanced? Well, it was, um, it was a kind of follow-up in a way uh, from a book I wrote earlier uh, called Accounts of Innocence, um, Sexual Abuse, Trauma in the Self. And that was a, a study of um, really centered around psychotherapy and, and a psychotherapy for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Um, and it was, you know, I wrote that and began studying about it in the 90s when all that, the concern about recovered memories. Um, there was a lot of talk about that and so on. And I wrote some about that phenomena. And, uh, but I was coming at it from a, from a question of, of uh, a philosophical, anthropological question, the question of what it means to be human. And I got interested in how people account for themselves in situations in which there's trouble, what I will talk about, I think, um, of, of everyday suffering. And how you account for it, how you explain it, right? Like what happened? Um, and because the account of what happened is quite critical to what you do about it. So the, there's a kind of reciprocal uh, interaction there. Um, and uh, so, so that, that particular psychotherapy was a kind of window on accounts people give that, that in turn kind of reflect what we think it means to be human. Um, questions of philosophical anthropology we usually think of it as abstract kind of philosophical question. Um, but it's really at the heart of how we imagine our life and understand human affairs. Um, we've done a number of projects here. We have one on, on aging. Um, in fact, the book comes out later this month called The Evening of Life from Notre Dame. That uh, was based on a conference we did exploring the question around aging and the life course. We did one on, a, on algorithmic decision-making and governance. Uh, but you could go on and on, right? How we think, raise our children, organize our schools, formulate our social policies, uh, manage our work lives, et cetera. All of those, you know, in some ways deal with this question of what it means to be human. Uh, and so that's, that's really been a kind of guiding thread of, of my work. And um, I came across, so after, well, I was finishing Accounts of Innocence, I came across, I began to see all these drug ads that began to appear in the early 2000s. Um, which were really interesting because they, they provide a kind of account uh, for people um, in a kind of nice, condensed, <laughs> one-minute form 
um, you get a kind of explanation about why your life has gone the way it has. Um, and they weren't really, uh, anyone who's seen drug ads knows they're not really directed at people with mental illness in what we normally think of that term meaning. Uh, but they really are directed at kind of helping him find a better life or have a better life. Um, with, with, treating what, with, with treating what you call every everyday suffering, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so can you say a little bit more about what what is because it's a, a key concept in the book. What is everyday suffering, and then you know how does it relate to to um, conditions that have diagnoses like attention deficit disorder, generalized anxiety disorder? Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a uh, it's in a term and since I invented, um, although I, in other contexts, sometimes people will talk about like ordinary suffering uh, or something like that. Um, and, and it may be a better way to say that term is suffering in everyday life, um, where everyday life is actually a kind of a technical term in social theory, uh, referring kind of to the arena of um, the kind of practical and felt experience of everyday life for people. Um, it's where we, we engage in kind of practical activity, our relationships. Uh, everyday life is guided by our implicit common sense knowledge and understandings, often used as kind of natural language. Um, and it's, everyday life is set against a kind of specialized, uh, elite kind of focused um, interpretations. Um, so if you're in seeing your your psychoanalyst and he starts talking about the edible complex, you're no longer in the realm of everyday life. All right. Uh, but if you're talking with your friends about, you know, the anxiety you're experiencing and something like that, that's more of the, the realm of the everyday. And I wanted a, a phrase that would be a non-medical way of talking about suffering, about, you know, experiences of humiliation and, and uh, uh, of, of not measuring up of uh, not living up to one's potential, the very things that people were telling me in the interviews um, that I wanted to treat as very serious. Um, they're, they're very painful experiences, uh, but I wanted to talk about them in a way that is not in a medical framework. Uh, the medical framework, it seems to me, leads us astray in almost every way. And uh, so I had to make a distinction. And, you know, if you ask a psychiatrist, right, it's very difficult to draw a distinction between. Right, uh, something like a, a DSM category. When do you have generalized anxiety disorder, and when you just have the worries of everyday life, and and those things are not, um, uh, you know, drawing sharp boundaries is very tricky. But the point was just that uh, it seemed to me we need a way of talking about these experiences that's not medical, um, and so that was that was the idea. Um, it, it's in everyday life, but it's but it's also a kind of suffering meaning it's not trivial. Um, mm -hmm. And I found kind of three, uh, quickly, three um, criteria or, or things that people said that, that seemed to me to be critical to the idea of the suffering. One was emotional distress. Second was it involved some kind of affront to yourself, either your social, uh, your self-understanding or your social standing, right? So, so something of the self was deeply implicated in this kind of suffering. Um, and then also it that had a sense of abnormality. All right. It, it, in other words, there wasn't a kind of ready explanation, right? You, it, it raised this question, which I call a predicament, um, raised the question of why is this happening to me? What's going wrong? That wasn't obvious. Um, 
to to participants in the interviews, right? Um, and it seemed to be so. Those three features, it seemed to me, were critical for the understanding of the suffering, and all of them add to the suffering, right? The fact that it's it's not readily explainable, right, adds some of the pain to the suffering, right? Because it was like people didn't want it to be happening to them, but they didn't know what was causing it. Uh, and that would distinguish it in some ways from a lot of our everyday experience that might be painful, but we know exactly why we're experiencing it, right? Like grief, um, you know, one can experience grief. Grief is painful, um, but 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 we know why, and um, and so in sense, grief is is um, is not a form of everyday suffering in the way I'm using the term, um, uh, even though there's obviously emotional distress. That makes a lot of sense, but can you can we back up a bit and maybe um, you can tell our listeners uh, how um, who you were talking to, you know that um, uh, you know. Um, so tell us about the methods that you, you used to research the book and where these accounts were were coming from. Did you have any really surprising interview findings or any interviews that that's really shaped your thinking or sort of stuck have stuck with you? Oh yeah, um, <laughs> I'm getting a little ahead of the game here. Um, yeah, so uh, what I did was um, uh, set out to interview. Actually, originally set out to interview 100 people. I interviewed 80. Um, and I won't go into the reason for reducing the number, but um, the way we did it was um, posted advertisements, um, recruiting people who were, had um, experiences um, with. Either being, I think the, the ad went something like, right? If they had struggled with being sad, with being anxious in social situations, or with concentration or attention problems, um, and then whether they might be willing to talk about any of those experiences. Um, and I picked those three areas, which kind of map on if, you, if there's a diagnosis to depression, social anxiety, and ADHD, um, because those are three of the most common problems. If, you know, reported by people in America, uh, forms of mental distress. Um, and then we put up the ads on, um, like Craigslist. We posted them in all these kind of weekly, alternative weekly newspapers, uh, that a lot of cities have. We put them on college campuses, public kiosks at libraries, you know, places where you can put up posters, um, and so on. And we did it in Chicago, Boston. Baltimore and here in, in uh, the Charlottesville, Central Virginia, Charlottesville and Harrisonburg, um, which are smaller um, cities. Um, and then uh, and then I used ex- we had some exclusion criteria. Um, I was interested in people whose experience could be characterized as everyday suffering. And so we created some exclusion criteria with the intention of excluding people who had serious mental illness. Um, so we excluded people who had ever been hospitalized for a condition, um, had been on certain drugs um, that are like the antipsychotics that are normally for treating people who have uh, psychotic conditions like schizophrenia or manic depressive illness, um, and so on. So it was kind of a people called an eight hundred number, and then there was a kind of screening uh, questionnaire that we went through, and and that way. Um, uh, Kind of screened out people who had, who had a you know kind of un, uh, un, unproblematically uh, conditions we think of as a mental illness, um, 
uh, so that was the that was the method um, uh, for um, for the interviews. And then we did interviews with uh, persons who lasted about two hours, um, then asked them to talk about their experience um, and so on. Um, you asked about what the maybe the most surprising finding mm-hmm. uh, in the book. Um, and oh, let me also add this: um, a qualitative study like this. We only interviewed eighty people. Um, a qualitative study like this is not intended to really find new things that no one ever knew. Um, uh, right? Often, what we do in, in, in creating um, the the interview instrument and so on is is work off of understandings that are already already some ways already known, often through survey data or other kinds of data, um, right? Uh, I already knew that it was common for people to cite things like chemical imbalance in their experience, that that language is out there, uh, various kinds of study of the media and so on show that, um, et cetera. Um, so I, I wasn't surprised that people talked in the language of of chemical imbalance, for instance. Um, but I was surprised at how mechanistic the, the language people used um, about their own experience, uh, how much they had kind of adopted a medicalized uh, way of talking, um, uh, right? Like words like um, anxiety and depression, um, Right, that you people used and would often refer to their all their emotional experience, right? Just using a, a very small number of words, um, right? For instance, my anxiety, um, and so on, and, and and almost every bad feeling is is subsumed under a few categories um, that people had. Um, and that I was surprised by, um, and uh, uh, or just how casual. People's references were to drug names and diagnostic categories. Just how, how widely those have penetrated popular culture and people's everyday lives, right? The casual references that people made to the workings of the brain, right? Or serotonin or dopamine, right? These these words just flow off people's tongues like they're you know kind of everyday words now. Um, and I was surprised by that, right? But, um, or even the kind of uh, how they decided what was what was deviant and what was normal and so on. And a lot of this reflecting clearly a lot of exposure to uh, these concepts and ideas. Um, and so that, I think that's probably the perhaps the most surprising finding was this, the way people talked um, clearly had been very influenced uh, by a certain uh, a kind of popular level kind of psychiatric language. I found that surprising too. And maybe it's because I hang out with too many academics for whom categories are always, you know, contested. Um, and um, these kinds of terms are up for debate. But just um, how how pervasive um, this, what you, you, um, you kind of coin a, a concept that you call the neurobiological imaginary to describe this phenomenon. Um, and it, and, uh, at the end of the book, you conclude that the neurobiological of the neurobiological imaginary, that there's a reductionism in it, but it's not a biological reduction. And I thought that was a really, that's sort of a key 
point that so when when people are are reducing all of their emotional psychological experience to oh I'm chemically imbalanced um it's it, it's not it, it's there's something more complicated going on than biological reductionism and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that uh, yeah that's a um, and it's a it's a it's a little tricky to say in in a brief um, brief space. So, but let me make a couple of comments. And, and in that context, that it wasn't a biological, it's not a biological reduction in the stories that ordinary people tell. Um, it, in the sense that they do not, um, they don't really think of their behavior as determined by by biology in the in any strong sense of the term. Um, uh, Instead, the, 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 the references to biology in their stories were really ways, um, you might say, to kind of offload experience from the self. Um, but when, if you, I ask them, like, what does chemical imbalance mean um, and so on, right? No one could really give an answer, and um, nor did they seem interested in giving an answer or seem interested in what a chemical imbalance might mean. Um, it was clear it, it meant something in their stories. It, it pointed to something that was not self um, and so on that, that brought it about. As one, one um, interviewee, how did she say it? Uh, something to the effect of, you know, I just have too much or too little of whatever causes these problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was her way of describing her, 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 her chemical imbalance. And um, so the, the, the science of it wasn't really in discussion. People didn't. Um, uh, you know, I think they, they kind of assumed there was some science out there, uh, that, that, that someone understood, um, but they, they really didn't make much, um, reference to that. Um, I think the, what I say in the book is it's not a biological reduction. It's a kind of reduction of our humanness, of our sense of being humans, um, in the, in the way that it, by, um, by, by talking like that. Um, right and, and kind of externalizing um, problems and difficulties and so on in in, in that way um, that really did undermine um, our, our the very sources of individual agency um, and so I think it had a that we're in some sense selling ourselves short um, in that kind of talk um, rather than um, rather than 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 thinking of our ourselves um, in biological terms if you will. Yeah. And and, I mean, you talk about it as as involving a kind of splitting off, like where, you know, I just chalk up every um, form of suffering I've had to some to, to, you know, something wrong with my brain, then I can divorce myself from those experiences. Um, You also I um, I I I interview um, quite a few historians of medicine on this um, channel and they um, if if any of them are listening might want to know that you have got a whole chapter in this book essentially devoted to to the history of psychiatry Um, could you say a little bit about I mean how how did the history of psychiatry lead us up to this point um, of you know kind of the reductive nature of the neurobiological imaginary Oh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, well, the way I center the history um, 
which it leads up to the the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in 1980, the so-called DSM-3, which is which is really the revolution and the critical turning point. And I think virtually every historian uh, of these things will will cite the DSM-3. It's a is a really significant break. Um, but I I argue that the the shift toward biology is really centered on the drugs, um, the drugs that began to come on the market, these new drugs for the mind that began to come on the market in the 1950s. Um, originally, the, the first really centered on, the, on, on psychosis with chlorpromazine um, and so on. And then what followed were the so-called minor tranquilizers, um, particularly Miltown, and then we have Librium and Valium. And these drugs were extremely popular through the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, Valium was like the best-selling drug in the world uh, for about 15 years um, and so on. And uh, those, those drugs, um, there was, you know, the, the, the question the drug forced was, right, how do they work? How is it possible that a drug can help people feel better for problems, you know, that we think of as problems of the mind? Um, and uh, and it was, you know, in, in a crucial way, and it's not the only thing that was going on. Certainly, I try to at least hint at a variety of other changes that are going on in, in psychiatry and the move away from psychoanalysis, particularly uh, in the importance of diagnosis as medicine becomes increasingly bureaucratized. Uh, but it was, it was in some ways the pursuing of this question of, of drugs and how they work. And that's when you first begin to get ideas that what the drugs are affecting are neurotransmitters like serotonin, like dopamine, right? And in fact, the ones we talk about, norepinephrine, the ones we talk about are actually all the ones that were talked about in the 1950s. Uh, even though we now recognize there are at least, there are probably more than 100 different, different neurotransmitters, but at the time, those were the ones that we knew about. And it was a kind of new discovery how those work. And uh, you, you get the idea, and it's a kind of working backwards from drug effect to cause. So if the drug effect affects the, up, the uptake of, say, serotonin or, or the reuptake of serotonin or dopamine or something like that, then maybe the cause of the problem, the cause of the depression, is somehow an inadequacy or a, or a shortage, say, of serotonin. Um, and that's when you get what are we later, you know, the shorthand was a chemical imbalance, right? People who are depressed have some kind of shortage of serotonin in their brain. And what the drug does is it blocks the reuptake, increasing the amount of serotonin available in the brain, in the, in the synapses, and that then leads to recovery or, or improvement in the condition. Um, and that idea, it was first developed in the mid-60s um, and then, I think, re-energized the field of psychiatry, um, which had increasingly was using these drugs, right, to rethink their categories in the in the and, and what's at the bottom, and particularly with the idea that we're now going to get to the biological foundations of mental illness, right? Medicine is really about the body, um, and, and psychiatry was always a kind of secondary, marginal field because it dealt with people's problems and their complexes and stuff like that. It didn't really deal with the body. Um, and I think the drugs opened up this possibility that finally psychiatry would become a real part of medicine, right? It will have, uh, it, will, it will then work toward 
discovering the biology of mental illness and new kinds of treatments and so on that would address the pathophysiology of a medical a mental disorder or the genetic roots of it and so on. And, and uh, so this was a great promise and it, it drove the development of the DSM-3, a redefinition of the categories, uh, the movement away from psychoanalysis um, and, and what happens after the DSM-3 um, is that the, there's an explosion of, of, um, uh, of kind of drug only. Before that, back in the 60s and 50s, drugs were largely uh, seen to be as adjuncts like the psychotherapy. Um, after 1980, it begins to move in a decidedly different direction. And then perhaps, especially after the introduction of Prozac in the late 80s, um, in which now more and more people are treated only, only with a drug. Uh, therapy has declined dramatically, um, and now people are just treated with a drug and so on, and it's conceived in some sense as a biological problem. Um, and uh, I might add that currently psychiatry doesn't think the chemical imbalance idea has been somewhat debunked because um, they just couldn't show it. Um, and there are treatments for depression that help where you actually reduce the amount of serotonin rather than increase it. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that that idea has been kind of marginalized and and and, and complexified, right? That whatever else is going on, it's much more complex than any simple chemical imbalance. Um, but I do think psychiatry is still very much wedded to a biological model. Um, now it, they just want to complexify it, right? And add other things, second messenger systems and and uh, other stuff. But it does seem to me that they're still after finding the biological roots of mental illness. And so in that sense, even while chemical imbalance has been somewhat displaced, uh, it does seem to me it's still heavily biological. And of course, the medication, the medication hasn't gone away. Um, it, so, you know, sort of... Um, bringing us up to to the research that you did um about half of the people um that you talked to were on a medication and then about two-thirds had sought some form of professional help um whether that was um you know um psychiatric or or psychological to to alleviate their everyday suffering um i wonder how did some of these people come to you use the word appropriate dis disorder categories um, you mentioned generalized anxiety disorder, ADHD, um, for themselves. So how did they come to identify with disorders? Right. And, and, and that's, a, I think, crucial word is kind of identify with, um, you know, I didn't find that people approached a disorder like generalized anxiety, like they might approach something like diabetes. Right, which is a common analogy that people make, say depression is just like diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, but people did not approach depression like diabetes. Um, and, uh, you know, where you, you just kind of accept, the doctor says you have it, and you sort of accept that. Um, and then you, then you proceed to follow the directions uh, that you're given to treat it. Um, uh, I, I draw a concept uh, from the anthropologist Peter Stromberg. Um, the phrase he uses is the impression point, impression point. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's a way of talking about a kind of how a subjective connection is made between a category of experience, um, between a category like 
like generalized anxiety disorder, depression, and one's experience. Like how does one subjectively make that connection? Uh, and it's something of a kind of aha moment um, when that happens, right? And when when the symbolism of the of the diagnosis right takes on some kind of personal meaning, they make a personal connection. Um, and this came in a lot of different ways that people described. Uh, so, for instance, um, one not uncommon one was for people to compare themselves to someone they knew, uh, right? So, you know, these ideas are floating uh, around amongst people. Um, they've read the media, they've seen drug ads and so on. So they have this kind of vocabulary. And, and by, you know, a certain point, almost everybody knew someone who was on something. Um, and so often they would compare their experience. So they'd talk with a friend and the friend would say, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I felt this and I went on this medication um, and so on. And, and people sometimes in the context of those conversations would say, oh, wow, it hit me. You know, we're, we have the same thing, right? We're suffering from the same problem. Uh, uh, or another form was that um, someone would just suggest it to them. Uh, I remember in one case, a woman um, and a friend, a couple of couples, they're leaving a restaurant. And uh, apparently the one woman during dinner had, had shared a little bit about her struggles. And on the way out, uh, the other woman says to her, you know, there's something you can take for that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then and it had never occurred to her that this was I, I probably never occurred to her that she actually had a medical problem in the first place. Um, and. Right. And, and the woman said, there's something you can take for that. And that was the moment she's right. And then she pursues, um, pursues getting a medication um, or maybe a third one. And this is really common um, is that people have seen representations of this in the media. Uh, I remember one woman I interviewed, she was talking about how um, she had seen a drug ad and she identified they were, they were kind of presenting the symptoms of depression. Right. And she says, you know, something to the effect that, you know, she's relating to them. She said, that's my experience. Right. You you see your own experience in what's being listed on the screen. Right. And then she has that kind of aha moment. Um, And and, and by implication here, um, a lot of the people I interviewed um, went to the doctor already having made this identification um, and then seeking a medication. Um, so, the, so they would, and they sometimes would refer to this as a self-diagnosis. I think that's a somewhat misleading term, but but the point is they've already kind of made this appropriation of a disorder category. They've identified their experience with it, um, and and often have already been exposed to talk about the drug or have looked at drug websites um, and so on. And then they go in and kind of present the case to the to the doctor. And of course, the drug advertising is intended to help people make that appropriation, right? That's the very point of it. Um, it's, it's direct to consumer advertising is for you to make the connection, um, right? And then they'll say things like, you know, ask your doctor today. Um, and the point is, right, is, is to start this appropriation process, right? And then you go to the doctor and they actually help give you the language to describe your experience. Um, and they have checklists and things which actually provide a vocabulary that if you then use with the doctor, right, he's liable to think you have it um, because you're now talking in terms of, of lack of sleep or, you know, the kinds of experiences that are in the checklist um, and so on. So that was that. That was, um, and again, I think this is different than a lot of regular medical conditions. Um, 
And, uh, and this often wasn't a passive process, but an active process. Um, and when people kind of made the connection, occasionally they would do it with the doctor. The doctor might bring it up. Uh, but that was, that was somewhat unusual, actually. It was more common for but, people that already, right. already made the connection. That they were inspired by kind of social and cultural factors, um, you know, and, 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 and then um, they would have some help medicalizing their, their everyday suffering. Um, I, I, I mean, yeah, that's right, especially in their, their like family and friends. Um, people had already talked with, you know, people, you know, typically the first person they talk to is not a doctor. It's, it's people around them. Those who are close to them, confidants and so on. And so they would talk with them. And there's this language circulating, uh, you know, I refer to it as the healthscape, uh, you know, kind of the landscape of health. This, this healthscape is very popular. And so they, it, was, it was in those contexts, it was often in relationships with other people, um, that they would have these kind of aha moments uh, when they were kind of, you know, sharing about their experience. And then the, the other person saying, oh, well, you know. I know this, or I've done this, or I know this person who did that. Yeah. So, so medicalizing this everyday suffering, you know, where people come to come to call it, say, "Oh, I'm having trouble concentrating. I have ADHD," or "Oh, I'm a, a nervous person. I have, a, you know, generalized anxiety disorder." Um, it it changes the way, you know, the the book really. Um, articulates how that changes the way that people think about and relate to themselves and their own experience. Um, but does it also, you know, I mean, one of the, the arguments made in favor of medicalization is that it reduces stigma. So I wonder, does it also change the way other people perceive, perceive them in the sense that like, um, you, you know, um, like if you can sort of, claim a, diag- a diagnosis, then are, is, is that somehow less stigmatizing? Um, okay, so um, first off, there's now a pretty considerable body of, of, of uh, research showing that, that medicalizing problems, in other words, putting them into some kind of biological framework, does not reduce stigma. In fact, if anything, it increases it. Um, so, uh, and, and that, and in my case, um, what I would say is that, uh, is that it, the way people frame their experience, I, I call it in the book, a third condition. In other words, um, people who are suffering from this kind of everyday suffering, um, often would distance themselves from the, the psychiatric category. They'd say things like, oh, yeah, I've, I was diagnosed with, you know, social anxiety. That's what the doctor calls it. But I don't call it, I call it just my anxiety. Um, and so and there was a lot of symbolic distancing from the category, sometimes a kind of rejection of them um, and so on. Sometimes a kind of passive like, yeah, okay, that's what it's called. Um, but I think of it differently. Um, so they had their own ways. And, I, and I, I refer to this as a third condition. In other words, they would situate themselves not as mentally ill, but also not normal either, right? So, so in other words, it was, it, was, it was justified and appropriate, say, that they take a medication for those who are taking medication, right? And, and that meant that they're, they're, they weren't just the same as everyone else. There was something wrong, but it's not mental illness. And so they, they position themselves in the middle, and I call that a, a third condition. Um, 
But one of the, the downsides of that, or the pernicious consequences of that, is that it, it's a kind of identifying that then sets you apart from the mentally ill. Um, and in that process, then people would have very, and, and I think kind of increasingly stigmatized views of the mentally ill, because you're defining yourself against them, right? I'm not like them. That mentally ill are crazy, the mentally ill are dangerous, the mentally ill are, and I'm not like that, right? And so it creates a kind of tension, uh, one of these kind of identity moves, <laughs> right, um, where you're defining yourself against something um, that seem to be led to the even more stigmatizing views of the mentally ill and of our people with schizophrenia and these serious uh, right. It's, it's not creating a coalition, right, of, of people who um, are, are interested in advocating for, for mental health. Everybody, you know, the number of people who are now walking around with generalized anxiety disorder, for example. Um, I, right. I, I didn't see a lot of solidarity. No. <laughs> the opposite. Um, plus, I might mention these conditions. Uh, because they're not that serious in the sense that they're, they don't involve a psychotic experience and so on, are easy to, the only people who knew about it were the people they told. Um, and so, so typically, so it's not the kind of thing that, that is visible to other people. Um, and so what that meant was that people were very careful about who they revealed uh, their experience to. And it often was one or two people. Uh, in their life. It, this wasn't something that, and, and so most other people simply didn't know about it. So, so in that sense, they didn't experience any stigma uh, in the sense of some kind of discrimination, say, or, or bad treatment because the people around them just simply didn't know about it. Uh, they could control access to that information. Uh, and that would be different, say, than someone who might have been hospitalized for a psychiatric, you know, ways in which their experience does in fact, um, can be seen by other people. And that, that's a very different experience. Right. Um, so, so it didn't create, so the, 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 the people experiencing everyday suffering weren't, didn't experience the effects of stigma, but their sort of, their very, their existence stigmatized, you know, stigmatized other psychiatric conditions. Yeah. Right. Well, in the way they talked about them or thought about their experience, um, the defining of their experience involved defining it against mental illness. And, and I think that that makes the mentally ill their other, um, right? And, and you, when you other someone, right, it, it's, it's usually, you know, you somehow want to distinguish your status from theirs. Um, and this can be a very, and there's a lot of, you know, clearly a lot of stigma and a lot of stigmatizing and prejudice and stereotypes. They're all, they all, they, they involve anothering. Right. In which we other those who, right, we want to, I'm not like them, <laughs> uh, you know, et cetera. So I, I think that was, I think if anything, uh, one, we know from all these studies that the biological does not reduce stigma by itself. And, and I think to that, I would add that it also seems like um, treating everyday suffering as a mental illness, um, it does not help the people who, who are truly mentally ill and who truly do need help, both, and one could add, at the level that resources are shifted off, medical resources are shifted off to people who, 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 who probably don't need them and, uh, or, or need something else. 
um, and that the picture of mental illness, it seems to me, actually kind of gets worse. Um, it doesn't increase uh, appreciation or empathy. Uh, it actually reduces it because we're, we're othering people rather than empathizing. So I was a bit, um, I was blown away by your book's conclusion. Um, I, in graduate school, for one of my comprehensive exams, I read books by Philip Brief and Christopher Lash and um, all of these criticisms of the psychologization of culture, right, that were made about uh, a half century ago. Um, and, and you have a very different take on, on that. Um, and it, at the end, and so, to, so towards the end of the book, you conclude that the disappearance of, of this psychologizing worldview has actually led to a crisis of spirit, which is sort of like the reverse of what the critics in the late 20th century thought it was going to do. Um, so, so I wonder if you could just, um, can you summarize your conclusion for us? Yeah. Um, I, um, I don't know that I'm, um, actually that far from Reef and Lash. <laughs> Those are also, you know, very influential, uh, people in my kind of scholarly formation. Uh, and, um, but I think, um, what I, uh, what I see, um, happening, uh, that again, actually, I think, I think Lash and someone were, were, would be sympathetic to, um, was not, um, not psychology in the, in the, in the sense of what goes on in most clinical psychological settings, for instance. Um, I, you know, my earlier book, Accounts of Business, is quite critical of that kind of talk, uh, that, those kinds of explorations and so on that are problematic. Um, but I think what I'm suggesting is that attention to the inter, inner life, right, is actually quite critical. And one of the effects of the biological turn is to turn away from the questions of one's inner life, right? How the very sources of our agency are tied up, right, with our personal and social history, right? How we, how we frame what matters to us and so on. That that gets marginalized or treated as unimportant, right? You just simply have some kind of brain malfunction. Our social circumstances, right? The context in which we live is marginalized, is pushed out of the picture, right? And drug addicts, the person, the sufferer is never shown in any context. They're just, right? Something has just gone wrong with the wiring in their brain um, and so on. And I think that that move away from the inner life is actually quite detrimental and, and, uh, and the, the, the kind of, and so I, you know, the, 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 there's a, there's a kind of use of the word psychology that means something more like just the stuff of our mind, this, the science of our mind, the study of our mind, uh, and so on. Um, you know, when, when philosophers talk about moral psychology, that, that's what they mean. Not so much a, a profession, an academic field or, or the clinical uh, psychology. Uh, I think we just need a richer psychology. Um, one that, um, uh, I think of as as maybe um, a kind of a kind of critical phenomenology or critical hermeneutic psychology um, that would explore um, the ways in which um, a, a kind of more a richer and more accurate understanding of ourselves, right? That would in fact involve our temporality, our memories, our history, 
um, the social practices that we're caught up in and the, the, the circumstances of our lives, uh, our dialogic relations, uh, both with others and with ourselves, our, our kind of internal conversation, um, the situatedness of that within a tradition, um, and so on. There's a lot of, of um, good work, I think, going on in phenomenology, uh, reconsidering questions of psychopathology and so on in terms of our kind of being in the world. Um, so it's, it's a, a, what we need is a more a richer, more accurate picture of ourselves, our struggles, the way we interact with each other, the way we uh, check our interpretations against the, our own background, the facts of our own history. Um, you know, it, it's reflective. Um, uh, uh, we pay attention to our emotions. We read our emotions not as some external thing, but as actually telling us um, something about ourselves. Um, and, and, and we keep in the picture, and this is the critical part, we keep in the picture uh, the normative uh, uh, world in which we actually live. What kind of pressure is being brought to bear on us, right? How are we supposed to think of ourselves as being efficient and autonomous and so on? Um, so this is, a, this is not, a, it's not a brief for just any kind of psychology, uh, but it is that the, 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 what we need and which I think psychiatry is in a, in a troubled position because it's something lost, is a kind of something that's not the biological, right, which hasn't really produced much. Uh, most of its ambitions have not been realized on the one side. And then on the other side, um, they gave up on psychoanalysis. Um, and you don't really have a kind of thick, rich, hermeneutic way of thinking about human persons and about our experience and how it, it relates. And I think that some of the phenomenologists are, are trying to um, supply that, trying to help us think about our, our engagement with the world um, that, that takes account both of our own history, our own personality, our own ideas, and so on, but also in conversation with the larger, um, the larger world, the, the kind of relation between the self and society, this, our subjective experience, and then the social structures and so on um, in which we live. Um, so anyway, it seems like it's it's not just a, a sort of a question that's internal to to psychiatry and the way that it practices or or um, different, you know, psychological therapeutic practices. It's that this this change, you know, for the majority of people to come to think of themselves, for people to come to think of themselves in this way and, and you're. And chemically Im imbalanced suggests that most people j today just don't. Um, it seems like there'd have to be some major cultural shifts. Um, do you like any and any? I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll just speak for myself here. I was very dispirited at the end of this book because it seemed um, it, 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 it seemed like, um, like you know. It, this major cultural shift is something that you're calling for and something that are, that is needed. But, um, I don't know. How do you get people to listen to phenomenologists? Um, <laughs> yeah. any, any ideas? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually I, um, I'm just working on something, um, uh, on this question, um, was the, the, the phenomenologist, um, you know, it, it's a kind of reconceptualization um, that that rather than introduce some kind of uh, technical language, really works with people's natural language for how they think about and describe their experience. You get a richer description of 
of your experience and so on. And, and I do think one of the problems that my study found was how much people have already kind of abandoned natural language uh, for thinking about their experience. Um, you know, one of the, you know, I said earlier, I was so surprised by the kind of the thin kind of mechanistic language um, that people would often use, the, the lack of emotion terms. And there's something like, there's more than 400 words in the English language for, for various emotions. I think people in my study must have used about a half a dozen. Um, it, there was just, there was no kind of, uh, and so I, th I think that's a real problem for, for a richer phenomenological kind of way of speaking because, um, Right, uh, a crucial thing for for understanding our emotions is being able to identify what they are, right, and what might be, right. Is that jealousy I'm experiencing? Is that envy? Um, right? Is that shame? Is that guilt? Is that you know that those, you know, they 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 specify different things and they specify how they might relate to us. What we feel is important, right? These are these are like windows on our own concerns. Our emotions are are commentaries on our concerns. Um, but, it, but it means being able to reflect on an emotion and, 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 and see it somewhat accurately so that you can then, uh, then you can see, okay, what's at stake here? Why am I feeling this way? Right. Um, and, uh, uh, so that, that does call for, a uh, uh, <laughs> There's a sort of kind of deprofessionalizing almost of the way we, we see ourselves in the world and, uh. And that uh, versus what so many of the interviewees in your book do, rather than, you know, name an emotion and think about the context and think about its root, which is to say, oh, there goes my neurochemistry again. And yeah. let me just set it aside and power ahead. So. Right, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, I don't know what the I don't I don't have, you know, an easy answer. Um, I, I, I think of my kind of of kind of sociology is is um, is at least helping to kind of identify a problem or or uh, pick out certain kinds of consequences um, that one understanding might have versus another. And um, uh, but but there is it is a, a deeply cultural problem, um, a kind of thinning view of ourselves. As I said earlier, it's a kind of reduction of ourselves. A thinning perspective on our our own our own life and our own um, and uh, you know I, I can't say I have a uh, well if, if if I can use some reductive language your your book does a wonderful job of diagnosing it um, yeah there we go <laughs> the cure the cure I'm not um, I think I think the phenomenologists are really moving in the direction of this would be a, a richer way to do psychiatry and. And a richer way to think about psychology and people's experience, um, and and I do think there's at least some I see some movement, right? People kind of frustrated by their experience with drugs, um, they don't often deliver, uh, you know, kind of what you know. Everybody I talked to who had been on a medication for the most part credited it with helping them, uh, but usually it helping them in the sense of of taking the edge off certain emotional experiences. Or like they weren't able to sleep, and they took the medication, and they were able to sleep, and and just doing that by itself will help people feel better, um, uh, or take the the sharp edge off emotions um, and things like that. And I do think that's a value to medication for that kind of short term, especially kind of crisis intervention, right? If you're crying all the time, it's really difficult to actually 
you know, think about anything else. So um, if the medication can help do that. Um, but also then I think there's been a lot of discontent with um, the actual um, the drug experience, right? They work for a while, then they stop working. You're constantly changing the medications, the dosages. Uh, you know, it could be a real roller coaster to be on a medication. Um, and uh, so I, I think that has there's been some sort of pushback about this idea of medication only uh, as a kind of treatment. Um, people are dissatisfied with it. I think there's a growing body of evidence about the long-term and negative consequences of being on some of these kinds of medications uh, and the ways in which they affect brain chemistry uh, over the longer term, make it much more difficult to get off them um, and so on. And, um, and I think, I hope that kind of something of the, of the, the, the dream or the kind of, you know, the drug's going to fix everything and that, that image is sort of worn off and, we might be able to use the drugs in more appropriate ways, often limited ways. Um, but then, um, so I do think there may be some hunger for like alternative ways of thinking about our experience. And, and I do think the work of some of the phenomenologists um, who have been thinking about these things and trying to find richer, more, um, more uh, thick, if you will, ways of, of talking about our experience, reflecting on our experience and so on, that those would have some kind of, um, they would find a, find a more receptive audience uh, perhaps than they have when there was this idea that you could just fix the problem with a pill. Uh, I think, I think that idea is running into trouble because it turns out you don't just fix it with a pill. Uh, wow. It's not that simple. Uh, well, I, I certainly, um, I, I, I hope so. Um, also, um, I think, well, Joe, we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, could you tell us what you're researching now? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so I'm working on a new book. I'm calling it uh, at the moment. These titles go under change. Um, Troubles of Youth. Um, and so it's it's an effort to kind of focus in on this high rates of distress that are reported by basically high school and college age people. Um, so in that whatever 16, 15, 16 to 22, 23 age range, um, and, you know, as you know, there's there's really high rates of reported depression, anxiety, ADHD. You know, one in five high school boys has an ADHD diagnosis, um, and so on. So there are very high reports of distress, and and I was trying to trying to kind of think about what um, what's behind that. And here I want to kind of bring some social theory to bear um, on, and and particularly around the question of of what you might call chosen identity, um, the idea that you author your own life. Um, and, uh, and how this, how this might affect young people who get this message at younger and younger ages, um, in which they're trying to, uh, author themselves. And I want to explore how that affects, um, uh, affects the race of problems and how that leads to certain problems. And so I'm working with, with interviews with parents and, um, and then also with some survey data we have on young people and. Um, and so on. And I'm, hope, I'm actually hoping that's a less academic, more like a, 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 call it a trade book. Um, well, it um, sounds like a wonderful project. And it, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's it kind of, you know, works off of this previous project in the sense of a lot of what seemed to me I saw going on there and heard in interviews when I kind of explore how that might lead, how might the social expectations, right? Let's say on young people to stand out and be unique, right? And, uh, 
and and optimize themselves and so on, how how that may lead to a lot of, of distress. Well, Joe, we have taken up um, so much of your time. I want to thank you for being, again, for taking time to talk to us um, and for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Claire. And I really, I really appreciate the interest in this research and, um, and the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you.